Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead. Let's turn to our passage today. Um, and we'll just be honest up front. This is a pretty heavy passage that we're looking at together in Matthew chapter 7. We've been, uh, we've been studying over this course of this summer. We've been looking at Jesus' words uh, in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching uh, very early in his ministry and talking about a lot of different themes, but one theme that very much runs through the heart of this sermon that Jesus has been talking about is the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And the idea that there is um, God's kingdom, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven, is truly something that is present now and that is still to come in the future. That there's an already and a not yet reality to the idea of the kingdom of heaven. And we've talked a lot about this spiritual reality of the kingdom of heaven being wherever God is ruling in the heart of a believer, anyone who trusts in God and is following his authority, then they are in a very real sense in the kingdom of heaven. But in Jesus, this passage we're going to look at today, Jesus makes reference to the kingdom of heaven in a way that very specifically refers to the idea of the future fulfillment of the all-encompassing kingdom of heaven. The idea that scripture teaches that, that at some point, God will remake the entire world. That he will assert his reign and his authority over the entire world in a way that brings it back to the way it originally was. When God originally created the world and everything was perfect, everything was in perfect peace, the, the Hebrew word for it was shalom, that everything worked the way it was supposed to work. And then it's been broken, and it's been broken for the entirety of human history, but we've been promised, and, and God has told us that there will come a day when he will bring that back to the way it's supposed to be, the way it was originally. And in that day... The kingdom of heaven will not just be a spiritual reality in people's hearts. It will be a physical reality throughout the entire world. And so that's what Jesus is referencing here. And as he talks about the kingdom of heaven in this passage, and he talks specifically about entering the kingdom of heaven, Jesus makes something really, really explicit that should give all of us pause. And this is where this gets really heavy. Because Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus makes it really clear in this passage that some people will get to enjoy the future blessings of that kingdom of heaven when it spreads throughout the entire world, when the entire world is remade in the way it was originally intended to be, and yet not everyone will get to be a part of that. He says, in fact, in verse 22, on that day many will say to me, and then skip down, and then I will declare to them I never knew you. In other words, Jesus is saying in this passage that there are many people, many people, who believe they should be in the kingdom of heaven, who will not be. That's a heavy thought. And I'll be honest, it's kind of a scary thought. Because Jesus is setting up here a paradigm where not only is he saying one of the most controversial things about Christianity, that some people 
will eventually have eternal life with God, but some people will not. But he's not just saying that. He's saying, not only is that true, which is hard enough on its own, but he's saying that there are many, his word, many people who believe that they're in, that they will have eternal life, that they will reign with him in the kingdom of heaven. And as he says, the phrase he uses, on that day, when, when the consummation of history comes, when the kingdom of heaven is restored fully to earth, they'll discover, they'll learn, that they're not. Naturally, the question that comes up in my mind, is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Who are these people that Jesus is referring to who think, who believe that they will be, should be in the kingdom of heaven, but will not be? Look, I, I want to be, right? I read this. We read this sermon. I read the New Testament. I hear him talking about this future. I think about the idea of this original creation of shalom, this perfection. I want to experience that. I want to be a part of that. I, I want to have a hope that there's more to this life than just this life. I want to believe that, that what is ahead for me is much better than what's behind me. I want to believe that there's justice for suffering. I want to believe that there's restoration for brokenness, that there's reconciliation for everything that's been wrong. And I don't just want that to be true on a global scale, right? As great as that sounds, I want that to be true for me personally. I want to believe that I can be in a relationship with my creator. I want to believe that I can be forgiven for my sins. I want to be able to experience the blessings of sharing in Jesus' glory. I read the scriptures and I hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven and it sounds so wonderful. And it sounds so much better than anything I'm experiencing right here and right now. I want that. So I read Jesus' words here that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, that, that many will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these great things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. I read those words and I ask, well, how do I know? How can I know? Can I know? Can I be sure? Is there a way in reading this, is there a way to know whether or not I will be in the kingdom of heaven? Is there a way for you to know whether or not you will be in the kingdom of heaven? As we've talked about this sermon, we've made it clear throughout, and Matthew, who writes this and is describing to us Jesus preaching, has made it clear that there are two groups of people listening to Jesus. And he refers to them as Jesus' disciples, his followers, the ones who are actually committed to following what Jesus teaches. And then what he calls the crowd. Those who aren't necessarily bought in. They're intrigued. They're interested. They recognize in Jesus a sense of authority. But they haven't actually believed in his words. What Jesus seems to be saying in this passage is that some people who think 
their disciples are actually a part of the crowd. So I want to be careful as we go through this. Because I know that there are at least two different types of, at least two different types of people listening to me that are here today who are either watching online or here in the building. And this will hit you in two very different ways. The same message is true for all of us. But we need to be listening, I think, with different ears possibly. Because I know there are people here listening today who are genuine believers. People who are or will be in the kingdom of heaven. And when you hear this, and when you read this, this teaching from Jesus fills you with doubt and anxiety. The idea that, that I've believed that I'm a, I'm a Christian, that I'm saved, that I'm whatever word you want to use, that I'm going to be in the kingdom of heaven, and, and you're throwing this into doubt, Aaron, or you're throwing this into doubt, Jesus, you're saying this might not actually be, and how do I know? And like the anxiety level just goes up and up and up and up. That's not my goal. That's not Jesus' goal in preaching this. Okay. I've heard, and I, depending on your background and your experience in church, my, in, in my church background, I've experienced in the past, um, preachers who would go to churches or, or come into churches and, and preach passages like this and especially specifically this passage with the intent of scaring everybody who's listening so that they can get everybody who's listening to make come like come forward they do like an altar call and have everybody come forward and make a, a recommitment or get re-saved or rededicate their lives to Christ or whatever the word you want to use and and to be honest and I'm I'm I don't want to necessarily, they might have good intentions, but a lot of times the intention behind that is because a lot of those uh, preachers are like traveling evangelists who kind of build their reputation on the number of people that they get to make decisions. And so if my goal as a preacher was to get a whole bunch of people to make a decision so that I could count it up and tell people how many people, like if we, if I wanted to go on, on social media this afternoon and tell how many people we had at Trailhead get saved this morning, I could use this passage of scripture really easily and, and manipulate everybody here to convince you, look, you probably, none of you are actually believers. And so at the end, we're going to have this altar call and all of you can get saved. And, and we could probably get a huge number of people, people who actually, truly are believers already, but I could raise your anxiety level up so high and convince you that you have to come forward, you have to pray a certain prayer, you have to sign a card or whatever it is. And the next week we could have this huge, huge rebaptism service where we could get almost everybody in the church rebaptized because I could convince you with this passage that you probably weren't actually a believer. That's not my goal. And that's not Jesus' goal. Okay? So as we talk through this, the purpose of looking at this passage is not to scare people who genuinely have faith in Jesus. But at the same time, in saying all that, there are undoubtedly people to whom Jesus' words apply. There are undoubtedly people who are listening today who have been deceived who've deceived themselves and deceived others into believing they are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And 
to those of us to whom that, about whom that is true, we need to hear this message. We need to hear this warning. Because this is a warning from Jesus. And he's not throwing it out here lightly. Because what he's saying is that our eternity could hang in the balance. We can, I believe we can know with assurance, based on Jesus' teaching, based on the New Testament, based on what God has revealed in Scripture, we can know with assurance whether we are, to use another biblical term, whether we are among God's chosen people. Whether we are or have been or ultimately will be saved from our sin. We can know that. So Jesus is not saying this just to scare us. He's saying this to us this morning, to his original listeners in the first century, but to us today. He's saying this to us so that we can know. So that we can be sure. So that we're not basing our eternity on a lie. So how do we know? Well, the first thing we have to see as we look at this passage is what Jesus says is not the guarantee of the kingdom of heaven. And let's make sure we understand who he's saying he will have to say to them, I never knew you. Okay? Look again, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So Jesus is kind of hypothetically talking about this future day, that day, which is the, the final judgment that's talked about elsewhere in the New Testament, where everyone, it says, will stand before God. And he says, in that day, there will be many people who will say, look, they'll refer to him as Lord. In other words, they know the lingo and they know the language. They know the right words to say. And they'll have a list of accomplishments. God, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many mighty works, and mighty works here is probably a reference to miracles. We did all this stuff. We did all these great Christian things. And we know how to talk about it because we've been there. We were in church, we learned the language. We did all the different types of serving. We were involved. We weren't just on the fringes. We were in it. What Jesus is saying here is that there is no guarantee of entrance into the kingdom of heaven based upon external Christianity. Now, when I use the word Christianity, and I put the word Christianity in quotation marks on the screen, the word Christian only appears in the New Testament three times. Christian or Christians, three times in the New Testament. And every time it's used in the New Testament... It's actually by or in reference to someone who is not themselves a follower of Jesus, talking about people who are. Does that make sense? In other words, the only time anybody in the New Testament uses the word Christian is if they're talking about someone other than themselves. Most of the time, and as you read those three passages, it's almost, almost an insult. The idea behind the word Christian was when other people look at Jesus' followers, what they see externally about them is so different to them that they needed a word to kind of 
what do we say about this? And so the word Christian, which means like little Christ, it was like, or imitator of Jesus, basically, is what they're saying. Like, you guys are like little Jesuses, almost like as a dismissive thing. What I want to say from that, and the reason I'm using that word here, is because biblically speaking, you could say that a Christian was really someone who, the, the word Christian in the Bible would refer to somebody who other people perceived to be doing Jesus-y kind of things. Talking Jesus-y language, doing Jesus-y actions. Which is what Jesus is talking about here. You say to me, Lord, Lord, you know the right words to say. You prophesy, you cast out demons, you do mighty works. You, you know how to act, you know what to say. But Jesus is saying that by itself is not a guarantee of anything. You can say all the right things. You can be a part of a church. You can do Bible studies and learn all kinds of technical information about God, about theology. You can read all the Christian books and listen to all the Christian podcasts and know everything that's going on in modern day American evangelicalism. You can do all of that. And you can slip in and be able to hang out and actually probably feel more comfortable around other Christians than you do around non-Christians. All that can be true. And yet, it is possible that you cannot actually have a real relationship with Jesus. Look at the words he uses, verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. In other words, there was no relational connection between these people he's describing and Jesus himself. You can say the right things. These people he's talking to, they said the right things. They did the right thing. They did amazing things. They cast out demons. I have not done that in my life. Right? They prophesied. They did miracles. Things none of us, or, or maybe I don't think any of us have ever done. And they, they, I mean, talk about a resume. Like, look at all the Christian-y stuff I did. And Jesus says, I don't, I don't know you. All that stuff, all those words, they mean nothing at the end. If you were here last week, we talked about the idea of fruit. If you remember this, Jesus was talking about false prophets. And he said, you'll know them by their fruit. And so this could be a little confusing in context of that. And so I want to talk about that. Because one of the things he said was that last week, Jesus said, false prophets, we could recognize the difference between a, a true teacher and a false teacher by the fruit in their lives, by the changes in their lives. In a sense, he's saying there's an external way that believers should be able to judge whether someone is teaching what is true or not. And so then the question is, how is that different from this? How is it that I can look at a teacher and say whether or not their teaching is true or false based on the fruit in their lives, but then Jesus is saying, regardless of this, actions or words, it doesn't tell us what's actually going on in somebody's heart. And so this is what I want to make really clear. We talked about this last week. Fruit, as Jesus refers to it, is not 
what we refer to as like Christian success. It's not external stuff. We saw this last week. The fruit Jesus is talking about, the fruit of the Spirit, is character transformation. It's not ministry success. It's not talent. It's not specific moral behaviors even. It's the transformation of a person's character by the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. So what Jesus is describing here, people who know the right words to say, they know how to act or talk like a Christian, they don't actually have an internal, though, transformation in their hearts. Everything on the outside looks awesome. And even they themselves believe. And that's what, again, what is so clear in this passage. They themselves are convinced, because they know the right words to say, because they know the right things to do, they're convinced that they're good. But there's not been an actual, real change in their hearts. <clears throat> this is, um, this is for me, this is a very personal sermon. Because for a long, long time in my life, I really wrestled with these questions. Specifically, um, in the language that, that I always used um, from the churches I grew up in, and, and probably it's probably true for a lot of you if you grew up in church, the idea or the question or the language we used was that somebody needed to be, get saved. And the question was always whether or not someone was saved. And the question I asked myself for a long, long, long time was how does a person get saved? Because for a long time, what I thought, and I'm not saying that somebody taught me this specifically, I'm not putting down any churches or teachers or anything like that, just for some reason, this was what my understanding was. This was how I took this to be, to, to be true. This was my understanding, was that there was some kind of a formula. There was something that somebody had to do. Specifically, my understanding was that there was a certain prayer somebody had to pray. And if that person prayed that prayer then they would be saved. And when you were saved, you would become a Christian. And so the question, are you a Christian, would be answered by, have you been saved? And then how do you know if you're saved? Because I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to come into my heart. Right? And for, for some of you, for a lot of you, that might be your experience. For some of you, you didn't grow up in church and you're like, that just sounds, I don't understand what you're talking about. So forgive me. But for those of you who did, this was very much like my understanding of how the world worked. And I wanted to know, I believed in heaven, and I believed and I'd heard teaching about hell, and I wanted to go to heaven, and I didn't want to go to hell, and so I needed to get saved, and I wanted to know, how do I get saved? And it was by praying this prayer. Which worked really well for me for a long time. About 10 years ago, though, about 10 years ago, this got really complicated for me. Because I was, at that time I was teaching, I was in a church where we had adult um, classes on Sunday mornings, we called them Sunday school. I was teaching an adult Sunday school class. And in teaching that class, we I used resources from other different authors and speakers and pastors. And we were using a resource from a pastor who at the time, I really respected a lot and really looked up to and, and loved his teaching. And he's talking in this resource about how to get saved. And he's talking about praying the prayer, like the same thing. And I'm like, this is really good. And then, here's what got me. The prayer, the way he described it, was different than the version that I was used to. And so I got really confused. Because I was like, wait a second. The way he's saying it, it's not the way I said it. 
And is he right? And if he's right, then did I do it wrong? Or if he's wrong, is he telling people to do it wrong? And I'm using this resource in this class I'm teaching. Is he teaching people, am I teaching people to do it wrong? And who's right? And what's the right way to do it? I got a lot of anxiety in my heart over this idea of, am I really saved because did I do it right? And this passage specifically gave me a whole lot of anxiety. Because I had prayed the prayer when I was a little kid. And for a long time, I was just good and I was resting in and I was confident in that I was good because I had prayed the prayer. But what if I had done it wrong? And what if what Jesus was talking about here applied to me? Because I hadn't done it the right way. So I became borderline obsessed with trying to figure this out and reading about it everywhere I could read about it and listening to sermons about it anywhere I could get my hands on a sermon about this. And what I started to find out was there's this wide range of teaching about what this looks like. And I started getting more and more and more confused. And then I got into, and this is me, and this might not be you, and so if this is not you, then... You can just judge me. But what I really started to do was like, well, which teacher do I like the most? Right? Because they're all different and one of them's got to be wrong and one of them's got to be right. So I'll just try to figure out who I like the most. But that didn't work because I'm like, that's not how you figure out truth. Right? So what do I do? And I had this crazy idea and I don't know why this came to me, but I thought maybe what I should do is instead of reading all these different books and listening to all these different sermons, what if, what if I read the New Testament and as I do, I pray about it. So that's what I did. And I started reading the New Testament. And as I did that, what God showed me, and it's in the New Testament, and it's all over the New Testament. I'm going to show you this here this morning. And this is what I really, really, really want you to hear today. Especially, especially if you're someone who hears this passage and worries about yourself, about your eternal destiny. But also, if you're somebody who's content that you prayed a prayer like I did, I want you to hear this today. We are not saved or rescued, or redeemed, or reconciled, or whatever word you want to use. None of that comes by what we do. Our eternal status, whether or not we're in the kingdom of heaven, is not based on what we do. To use exact words from scripture, salvation belongs to the Lord. We are not saved by what we do or by what we say. We are saved because we trust in what He did for us. So I want to say this really, really clearly. okay? Because again, I wish someone had said this to me really, really clearly about 10 years ago. There's no such thing as doing it wrong. 
There's only trusting in Jesus or trusting in yourself. Most of the time when I obsess over whether or not I had done it right, what I was asking was, what have I done? What do I need to do? I, 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 I. And I was trusting in myself to obtain and secure and hold on to my own redemption, my own rescue. And I knew the Jesus-y words because I grew up in church. But what I was trying to figure out was how to get Jesus to save me. I didn't need, and I don't need, and you don't need to get Jesus to save you. What you need, what I needed, and what I still need every single day, is to trust that Jesus has saved you. Freedom, redemption, doesn't come from following a formula or praying a prayer, or doing any religious actions. It's not what you say, and it's not what you do. Freedom comes from trusting, not in what you do, but what in Jesus, but trusting in what Jesus did for you. The gospel, the good news, is not that you can do X, Y, and Z, or not that you can do, to use a very popular way of expressing it, the ABCs. The gospel is, Jesus did this. Believe it. Just believe in it. Now, can I back that statement up? Because that's, again, I, I know, a pretty bold statement. Is that what Jesus is teaching here? Look again. Look at verse 21. Because this is big, Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Because Jesus says, not everybody goes, but here's who does go. It's not these people. It's not the people who say the right words and do all the right things, but it is these people who? The ones who do the will of of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to do the will of the Father? Because I'll be honest, it sounds like he's saying you have to do all the right things, doesn't it? Like, I mean, this almost sounds contradictory. It's not by doing the will of the Father, or it is by doing the will of the Father, but then here's a whole bunch of people who said, well, we prophesied and we cast out demons and we did many mighty works in your name. Hey, that sounds like that should be the will of the Father, right? And he says, no, that's not it. You're not in. So what is the will of the Father? Does it mean possibly following all of Jesus' commands? All of the laws? Everything, because throughout Scripture, there's where God says, do this. Is doing the will of the Father doing whatever God asks you to do? Maybe. Maybe that's a big part of it. Look back, if you, still, if you have your Bible open to the book of Matthew, flip back to Matthew chapter 5. We looked at this verse several weeks ago, and so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus addresses this idea and, and uses the language of entering the kingdom of heaven. So I think this must be necessary to put in connection with this. Verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as the will of the Father is following all of his commands, then what Jesus is saying here is, okay, the only way to get in by following all of God's commands is to do them like perfectly. The scribes and the Pharisees were really, really, really good at following all the rules. You have to do it better. How can we have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Is this what Jesus is saying in in chapter 5 and verse 7? He's saying only perfect people get in. Well, that can't possibly be true because then nobody's getting in. And what would be the point? So we talked about this somewhat when we looked at Matthew chapter 5, but I want to give a fuller picture of this. And so in order to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. This is more teaching from Jesus. This is another long sermon from him. I'm going to give you some context to this um, because there's a very specific context to why Jesus is teaching this in John chapter 6. Because this is coming right off of Jesus did this incredible miracle. This incredible miracle where there were thousands of hungry people and no food except for like one small amount of fish and bread. And he took this tiny, tiny amount of fish and bread and he used it to feed thousands and thousands of people. Which is an incredible miracle. And all the people who saw it, all the people who experienced it were like blown away by it. And so they started following Jesus around because they wanted, you know, more food. Right? Because this was a time when food wasn't just always abundant and so easy to find. And here's a guy who's giving it out. And so they're following Jesus and trying to get more from him. And John chapter 6, Jesus talks to them. And um, they're looking, they've been looking for him. And Jesus says, verse 26, John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're hungry, and you got full, and now you want more. So, verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is setting up a dichotomy here. You're so focused, you're following me because of you want momentary, temporal uh, satisfaction, right? Material gain, you want your bellies filled. He says, but there's something much bigger. There's something much better. There's something, the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, that will satisfy you in a way that, that this earth, this world never can. You follow me for one thing, I can give you something so much more. And he says, uh, I left off verse 27, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him, the Son of Man is himself, he's referring to himself, on him the Father has set his seal. Then they, verse 28, this is the crowd who wants the food, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're asking the question. Jesus you know, back in the Sermon on the Mount said, the one who does the will of my Father. So they're asking the question, how do we do that? How do we do the works of God? What is God's will? What does God want me to do? How can I get a hold of eternal life? And Jesus answers them. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. So here it is. That you believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work that we need to do? What is the will of God? And Jesus' answer is, the work we do is no work. What we do is not what we do. We just need to believe. The word believe here is the same root as our word faith. 
or our word trust. Jesus keeps flipping this around. Every time somebody asks this question, every time somebody wants to know, what do I have to do? What do I do? I, I, I. Jesus always flips it around because it's not about us. It's about him. What we need to do, what we do, is not do anything. We trust. We believe. That's not an action. It's a posture. To do the will of God is to have faith in, to trust in, to believe in what Christ has done for you. Let me give you a little bit of a metaphor, and I know metaphors can only go so far, but do you fly in an airplane? Do you like to fly? Does anybody hate to fly? Anybody just hate flying in an airplane? No? Okay. Or you just don't want to admit it. That's cool. Um, it doesn't matter. Well, let me, let me put it this way. When you are in an airplane, whether or not the airplane will get you from your des- from your your point of departure to your point of arrival, whether you get to your destination or not, depends solely and completely on the, the strength and the soundness of the airplane and the ability of the pilot. It doesn't depend on you as the passenger, right? To get anywhere on an airplane, all you have to do is get on the airplane. The amount of trust you have in the pilot, like, it doesn't matter if you know the pilot really well. It doesn't matter if you've done your own safety inspection of the airplane before you get in. If the plane is sound and the pilot is good, you're going to get where you're going. As long as you have gotten on the plane. And it doesn't matter how you got on the plane. It doesn't matter whether you, like, excitedly bounded onto the plane, happy, if you very begrudgingly dragged yourself onto the plane. If you're on the plane, you're going to get where you're going. And at that point, you know, mid-Atlantic... Over the ocean, if your faith in the pilot or the airplane starts to waver a little bit, it doesn't really matter all that much as long as you're still on the airplane, right? And, and mid-flight, if you start questioning yourself about how much you really like flying, if this is really the plane you want to be on or not, At that point, there's not a lot you can do about it. Now again, I know this is a metaphor. I'm straining the metaphor just a little bit. But when it comes to flying in an airplane as a passenger, I'm not talking as a pilot. Obviously, the pilot needs to know a couple of things about flying an airplane. But as a passenger, all that matters is whether you got on the plane or not. Getting on the plane in some way is an act of faith. But the key in your flight is not how much faith you have. The key is the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how much you trust the airplane. It matters whether the airplane itself is good enough to get you where you're going. You can have a lot of faith in a bad airplane. And if it falls apart and it goes down, it doesn't matter how much faith you had. Right? If an airplane's going down, you sitting there in the, the, the crashing airplane screaming, but I believe, is not going to help. 
right? It's the airplane that matters. When it comes to faith in Jesus, the quality of our faith, the amount of faith we had, how we express that faith is not what matters. It's the object of our faith that matters. Jesus either is or is not good enough to get us into the kingdom of heaven. And if we trust in him, however much or however little, if we are trusting in him and him alone, then it all rises and falls on him, not on me and not on you. This is the work of God, to believe in him, Jesus, whom he has sent. Now, will trusting in Jesus in our lives, will that lead us to obey him? Yes, it will. Really trusting him. Because if we genuinely trust in him, then we're going to believe him. And when we hear him say, this is better, if we really trust him, we're going to obey him. If we really believe that he has authority over all of life, then we're going to submit ourselves to his authority. Yes, that's true. That faith will start to change our lives. Yes, it will. And that's what we talked about as being the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit working in our hearts. It will transform us. But it's not that fruit, it's not those changes that grant us entrance into the kingdom of heaven, that guarantee us eternal life. That is the fruit of belief. That's the fruit of faith. Faith doesn't rest. Please listen. Your faith can't rest in what you do. Your faith can't rest in how you are changing or have changed. And if you look at yourself, as so many believers do, and say, I've been trusting in Jesus for years, and my life doesn't look appreciably better. In my estimation, I still struggle. I still have temptation. I still sin in some ways that I hate. Your faith can't be in you. Your faith has to be in the one who is saving you. Jesus came to earth as God incarnate, God in the flesh. Now look, he is a great teacher. We've, we've been studying all of his teaching, and it's incredible. He's a great teacher. But all of his teaching is really, honestly, and if you look through, as we've talked through this sermon this summer, I hope what you've seen is Jesus' teaching is really all about Jesus. It's not just morals. It's not just ethics. He's not teaching this is the best way to live. He's teaching this is the best way to live, but only because of who he is and the truth of who he is. He came to this earth. He lived, he lived a perfect moral life. He had the righteousness that exceeded that of the Pharisees. He did that. And then he died as our substitute. Because none of us can do that. None of us can have that righteousness that he's talking about. But Jesus did. And so he took the punishment we deserved. The punishment for our sin, for our unrighteousness. And he didn't just take the punishment. When he died, he rose again in victory over death. 
He stands supreme over life and death. And if we talk about eternal life, if we talk about a kingdom of heaven where we will never perish, the only way we can never perish is because Jesus has already defeated death. If we trust in that sacrifice, trust in it, then we share in His righteousness. We are covered by His sacrifice. We are covered by His blood. Look, if we could be good enough on our own, if we could be righteous enough on our own, if we could do all the right things on our own, if we could say the right words, if we could do the miracles, if we could cast out the demons, if we could do that stuff on our own, Jesus never would have had to come to earth. He never would have had to die. Because we could have just done it. But we couldn't. So he had to. And so he did. And so he did. And because he did, we can enter the kingdom of heaven with him. With him. We can be, and the New Testament uses this term way, way, way more than the word Christian. We can be in Christ. We can be united to Christ. Look again at the description, the words Jesus uses in verse 23. To those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven, I never knew you. The gospel tells us that by Christ's sacrifice, not by our own works, by his sacrifice, we can be united to him. We can know him and we can be known by him. We can have confidence about this, and we can know this for sure. Not by asking, what do I do? Not by asking, how do I get saved? The key question, please hear this, the key question for all of us is not how. The question is who. Who is your faith in? Who are you trusting in? Not how do I do it. Not am I doing it right. Who is the one who can get me to where I need to go? Again, Jesus is saying, there are people who are deceived. There are people who have convinced themselves because they know the language and they do the the works that they're in. And Jesus is saying, they're not. That's a heavy warning. But I want to put Jesus' words in Matthew, into the right context that we all hear. Because he's saying that there's some people who will be in and some people who will not. Can I know if I'm in or if I'm not? Look back at John chapter 6 again. Because I want to read more of what Jesus said because I think this will give context that we really, really need to hear. Especially, if you're like me, especially if this teaching from Jesus can fill you with anxiety, please hear this. Start in verse 30. So they said to him, he said, 29, he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then here's where I want to focus. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I, me, it's about him. It's who, it's not how, it's who. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And here's the the biggest, most important thing. We have to see this. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In the book of Matthew, he says, there are some people who are going to come and say, Lord, look at all the things we did. We, we say all the right things, we did all the right things, and he'll say, I never knew you, depart from me. He will cast them out. But here he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What's the difference? Because what he's describing here is for those who believe in what he did and go to him, not to themselves, not to their work, not to their morality, not to their knowledge. Just go to Jesus and say, I've messed up. I've got nothing. I need you. And he says, whoever, whoever comes to me in that way, I will never cast out. Who will Jesus receive? Who will get into the kingdom of heaven? Whoever comes to him. If you come to Jesus, if you come in humble repentance, if you call out to him as your savior, he will not cast you away. He will not say he never knew you. If we say, if Jesus teaches, there are some people who will be in the kingdom of heaven and there are some people who will not. Does that make Christianity exclusive? Because that's, that's one of the biggest criticisms of the Christian faith. Is that there's a belief among Christians that some people are in and some people are out and that that's exclusive and that only believers in Jesus are in. Is Christianity exclusive? According to Jesus, yes it is. It's only for whoever. It's only for anyone. It's exclusive, but it's wide open. It is wide open to anyone who comes to Jesus. Anyone who believes in his sacrifice. Anyone who believes that he has conquered death. That he is our savior. Anyone who comes to Jesus and asks him to be their savior and trusts in what he has done. He says he will not cast out. If you have anxiety, if you feel afraid, if you are asking yourself, am I among, like you said that phrase, am I among God's chosen people? Then the answer is, well, do you want to be? Because if you come to Jesus, if you come to Jesus, he will not cast you out. And you say, but I have sinned so much in my life, he will not cast you out. Yeah, but I've been, I've been trying so hard on my own to be so good and I keep failing. He will not cast you out. 
Yeah, but, but I'm not sure if I completely understand all the theology here and there's so much depth and there's so much in the, He will not cast you out. Do you want to know? Do you want to have assurance of being in the kingdom of heaven? Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Let's take some time. Let's pray. We're going to share communion together in just a moment. If you would, bow your heads with me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. God, we desperately need you. On our own, none of us is good enough. All of our works, all of our attempts to be good Christians, to do the right things, always fall so far short. And yet, you love us. You gave your Son because we fail. You died for us. Thank you for that. God, to anyone here who is deceived, who believes that they, by their own work, by their own morality, by their own religious activity, can earn your favor, I pray that you will open their eyes, that the warning here will be loud and clear to them today. But God, for everyone, everyone who's listening today, I pray that the truth that we just need to trust in you will be even louder. And that everyone will place our faith solely in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.